Hi and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. This will be a completely different kind of show from most of our previous ones. Consider it a history lesson. 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues, which existed as an entity separate from Major League Baseball during a time in which baseball was segregated, with Major League owners not signing black players until Jackie Robinson signed with Branch Rickey and the Brooklyn Dodgers and made his debut in 1947. If you know baseball history, you've probably heard the names Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, and Buck O'Neill. Maybe you've learned a little about them from books or broadcasts. You typically hear about players who could hit, pitch, and run. But you don't typically hear a lot about defense in the Negro Leagues. On today's show, we talk to two Negro League baseball historians, Gary Ashwill, who is part of a group documenting Negro League baseball statistics, and Negro League Museum and co-founder Larry Lester, a great storyteller who helps us humanize the stories of a few great defensive players. If you're not familiar with the Negro Leagues, it may help you to Google Negro League baseball history before listening to these interviews. Gary Ashwill is a baseball writer and researcher, with one of his specialties being the Negro Leagues. He is the co-founder of Seamheads.com's Negro League database. He shares his work there and at his blog, Agitype, named after newspaper box score size type back in the day. Gary comes to us today from North Carolina. Thank you for joining us, Gary. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mark. All right, so let's start broad here and work our way to the specific what is the Seamheads baseball database specific to the Negro Leagues, and where did your interest in this originate? Well, the Seamheads database is an attempt to do what hasn't really been done before, which is publish comprehensive reference work on the Negro Leagues that presents playing statistics and also biographical information for players. And it's something that a lot of people have been working on Negro League statistics over the years, going back to the 80s. And we brought together like all the people who have really been serious about it from Larry Lester and Dick Clark and Wayne Stivers, who oversaw the Hall of Fame project that you might have heard of back in the early 2000s uh, to collect statistics. We've, they're working with us. We've got our own stuff. A couple of guys, uh, Scott Simkus, who did the Stratomatic uh, Negro League uh, baseball set. And another guy, Patrick Rock, who has done some really good statistical work on the 1923 season, and lots of other folks who've contributed uh, a lot of material to us, box scores, biographical information about players, and so on. So we're trying to put it together to have, for the first time, like a really comprehensive uh, reference work on the Black Baseball Leagues before 1950. Now, I can imagine that that home runs and strikeouts and such were certainly spotlighted both in articles and in box scores. But this group has done something even, I think, more impressive in trying to piece together fielding statistics. And with defense being our specialty, I think that's kind of what I wanted to focus on here. How in the world did you go about doing that? Because I can imagine how difficult that must be. Yes, yes. That's, it, it, it is difficult. It's a lot more work than just putting together the hitting and pitching stats, although it kind of gives you some insight into the hitting and also helps you with, with pitching in a lot of instances. The fielding stats come from box scores. That's the basis for, for all, of our, uh, all of our statistics in the database. So everything's broken. Like we start off with at the game level, start off with box scores. 
thing is, is today, even to this day, I was just looking at MLB.com's uh, box scores, you know, and they, for position players, it pretty much focuses on hitting statistics. Then you've got the pitching stats there too. There's almost nothing about fielding in the typical box score that you look at. And that's been the case since what, I don't know, the 1950s, 60s. You know, it's like the standard box score would be, you have the players and you've got at-bats, runs, hits, RBIs, right? Well, Prior to 1950, and especially prior to 1940, you usually had uh, fielding stats too. So you had putouts, assists, errors, also double plays, it's like listed in the summary section below. And that's in pretty much most of the box scores. The farther back you go, the more sure you are that you're going to have fielding stats there. So all this, all this data, all this information is there, just waiting to be put together along with the hitting stats and so on. But it really does take a lot of work uh, putting together all the box scores, you know, there was no central source. There's no sporting news or, you know, it's uh, the, for the major leagues, it's like major newspapers would print box scores for all the games. You know, all the major newspapers would. Uh, for the Negro Leagues, more typically, uh, you, you have black weekly newspapers. There, up until the 30s, there were no black daily newspapers. So just weekly newspapers come out once a week. And they print a lot of box scores, um, but you have to go into the daily papers in the city where the game was played. Track, track down those box scores. You can't find them for every single game, although, say, in the 1920s, you've got, like, box scores for, you know, in a given season, like, maybe 95% of the games, so you can get most of them. But you do have to track them down from all over the place, from hundreds of newspapers across the country. So it's taken years and years to put all this together. And you've basically enhanced statistical knowledge for a historical league, uh, which I think is, is quite remarkable. What are some of the things that you learned about Negro League defense in doing that? There are a lot of interesting things to learn about. I mean, this is baseball prior to 1950. You know, you have fewer home runs, fewer walks, fewer strikeouts, so more balls in play. So fielding is some more important part of the game probably than we tend to think of it now. It's a lot, it's a lot more common that, say, in a story about a game, they'll say that like, oh, the most important thing that happened in this game was this amazing fielding play as Oscar Charleston made a diving catch of a deep drive to center field by you know, John Beckwith or whoever, you know, and that would often be focused on as like the main thing that happened in the game. I think that's somewhat, somewhat more common then than it is now. Some other things that you learn about it in the Negro Leagues, the ballparks were well, in the 30s and 40s, they tended to rent minor and major league parks. Before that, it was much wider variety. They controlled more of their own parks. They might have smaller parks that were originally built for semi-pro teams. The parks were not especially well taken care of because you didn't have money for large groundskeeping staff. So the, the infields were maybe a little bumpy. Uh, the grass might not have been cut all the time. So the conditions were a little bit different. Um, equipment was older. Um, you tended to have balls that were scuffed and dirty and kept in play longer. Um, the spitball was legal in the Negro League. You got old gloves and so on. So what, I, what that results in is more errors. So that's something that's, that's really comes clear when you, when you compile these stats. There's more errors, which means that you might have similar looking averages, you know, batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, and so on, but you'll end up with more runs out of that. One of the things that I know another person in your group did 
was they took the statistics that you put together and they turned them into like a run saved kind of statistic like our company does. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. I know that that's not necessarily your expertise, but can you just kind of give an overview of, of what was done there? What happens is that uh, well, we don't have, we haven't yet compiled fielding statistics for every season. So there's a little bit of a, there's some blank spaces in there um, that you have to take into account. Essentially, we have the, we have put outs, assists, errors, uh, you know, traditional fielding stats. And you always have to kind of take those and, you know, squint at them and manipulate them to do something. So I think that, you know, having like defensive regression analysis or whatever, you know, is like a very, can be a very good tool, but it's a good idea to keep in mind you know, the smaller sample sizes, like when we look at the Negro Leagues, the number of games that they played against league opponents, you know, is a lot smaller. It might be 70 or 80 or 90 games a season. They played 150, 200 games a season, but a lot of those other games are against semi-pro opponents and so on. It's like the economics of the Negro League game were, were very different from, you know, the major leagues at the time. So if we want to limit ourselves to what happened in league games or games against, you know, top-level teams, Sample size becomes an issue, and we have to think about that. So, so it's good to kind of look at if you're looking at our website or whatever, uh, to look at uh, you know players' whole careers or large you know several several years in a row, you know, to get a pretty good idea of what's going on. You know, I think that it's it's, it's interesting because you do do you see some interesting uh, patterns, and it becomes clear after a while some players, perhaps some players are surprisingly good, that whose history has not actually recorded them as being, you know, uh, uh, all-stars or whatever, you know, or in some of the other players who have really good reputations, maybe not quite as good defensively, even if they're great hitters, you know, so. All right. So with that, we should talk about who the great players were. Uh, who would be your kind of pseudo gold glove team from the Negro League Research? There's going to be a lot of obscure, obscure names here. So catcher uh, Frank Duncan played for the Monarchs in the 20s and 30s. He's pretty well known to historians. Uh, first base, Bill Pettis, who's a pretty obscure player from the teens, played for a lot of teams on the East Coast. He originally came from New Mexico. He was a, also a prize fighter. Started as a catcher, but moved to, moved to first base. And He was a to, boxer? He was, yeah, he was. <laughs> on the West Coast. Second base, John Henry Pistol Russell. He played for the St. Louis Stars and the Pittsburgh Crawfords in the 20s and 30s. A uh, shortstop, I would say Dobie Moore. He's pretty well known, to, at least to historians. He was shot in the leg in an off-field incident in 1926. And that's what ended his career, unfortunately, at pretty early age, in his early 30s. But his defensive stats are actually one of the first things that I really noticed when I started uh, compiling fielding stats. Uh, was there any newspaper description of, of what kind of fielder he was? Not not a lot. He had a really strong arm. I think that's one thing that is really well known about him. Um, he also was known as uh, known for starting double plays. I would say third base. This is a kind of an unusual one uh, that people might not expect. A guy named Felton Snow. He was player manager of the Baltimore Elite Giants in the 30s and 40s. Not not a great hitter. Had a long career though, um, but his fielding numbers uh, look pretty good by our system. Um, in the outfield. I've got Jelly Gardner, who played for the Chicago American Giants in the 20s. Jimmy Lyons, who played for the same team. And that's kind of interesting because I think that the manager of that team, Rube Foster, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's the founder of the Negro National League, owner and manager of the Chicago American Giants. One of the things we can find from stats that we've compiled is that he favored uh, fly ball pitchers. 
and he wanted fast outfielders to run around and catch all those fly balls. It's pretty clear, you know, among other things, like the number of assists is fairly low in, in American Giants games. That's one of the things that, that's uh, one of the telltale signs of a team that's trying to keep the ball off the ground. So, but two of the two of the outfielders who come out really well in our in our metrics are Jelly Gardner and Jimmy Lyons, both of whom played for our Foster. Third outfielder is uh, Jimmy Crutchfield, who played in the '30s for the Pittsburgh Crawfords. That leaves the pitcher. That's a little harder to tell. You can look at the number of plays, the number of assists a pitcher makes, but that could be just as much a sign of whether they're a ground ball pitcher or not. But my my guess, and it's a bit of a guess, I would be Bullet Rogan, who is a Sort of a two-way player, a great hitter and pitcher. Uh, played in the outfield when he uh, wasn't on the mound. Played for the Monarchs in the 20s. That was sort of his heyday. But he was, he was great all over the diamonds. A little bit like another somewhat better known uh, fellow Hall of Famer, Martin Diego, the Cuban great who could play anywhere. Rogan was kind of like him too. So a great athlete. Smallish guy, 5'7", 160 pounds, but was basically good at everything. Was like literally a five-tool maybe six or seven tool player. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned versatility. Now, versatility was prized in the Negro Leagues, right? Yes. Uh, Well, normally, uh, given the economics of these teams, uh, they normally had kept a roster of maybe 14 to 16 players at a time. They might have four or five pitchers, all of whom would be used as pinch hitters, pinch runners, and in the field sometimes. doesn't give you very many options when you're a got injuries or, or other issues that, uh, that cause you to need to change your lineup around. So that means that uh, you really need to have guys who can play multiple positions. And you pretty much will find, unless somebody's, uh, if, you, if you threw right-handed and you were a position player, you were going to play some in the infield, some in the outfield. You might even catch a game or two. You know, <laughs> um, If you threw left-handed, you still might get thrown in at third base or something every so often. But you're going to play, you know, in all three outfield positions, you know, uh, you might pitch if you're left-handed, you know, it's, it's, so, so there's, there's a, the, it's really necessary to do that. That also means, of course, that there was less of a chance for players to really specialize in one position. I mean, there were guys who did, you know, Dobie Moore was pretty much a shortstop after, you know, a certain point. But you had, you know, Newt Allen, Newt Allen, who was a uh, Kansas City Monarchs, he was actually... Dobie Moore is a double play partner in the early 20s uh, with the Monarchs. After Moore was injured, it was Allen who just moved from second base to shortstop. And he was a shortstop for several years. So he's kind of a shortstop in the middle of his career, even though he's better known as a second baseman early. But that was, uh, that was a very frequent thing that happened. You just have to move in to take over whatever position you needed to take. Uh, Monty Irvin, you know, played in the 40s for the New York Eagles and then later in the, in the majors for uh, the New York Giants. Well, he's known as an outfielder in the major leagues, but in the Negro leagues, well, he was also known as an outfielder. That's what, that was his primary position, center field usually. But at one point in the 40s, the Eagles were short. They didn't have a shortstop, and he, just, he was the best athlete on the field, so he stepped in and played shortstop for several years for the Eagles. So. Nice, and he's the most prominent person. Uh, a lot, with a lot of these guys, you said this is the most, this is an obscure guy, or he's known yeah. to the historians. Among the people I think that our audience, like our audience is probably going to know Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and Oscar Charleston and the biggest of the big. Uh, did any of them have any sort of standing out defensively? Well, Oscar Charleston was an interesting guy. He had a very interesting defensive profile in his career because he was uh, famous as a center fielder. 
He played a very shallow center field, uh, sort of like uh, Tris Speaker, who was a little bit older than him, but he played very shallow and was uh, basically relied on his speed to catch anything that was hit over his head. He played as center field for most of his career, through his 20s into his early 30s, but he moved to first base, like, forget what age, I think at age 31 or 32. So he moved straight from center field to first base. And that actually tells you a little bit of something about uh, the Negro League defensive spectrum. (laughs) So um, it's a little bit like, you know, to to use a Bill James uh, concept, uh, it's a little bit like the dead ball era defensive spectrum uh, in the sense that second baseman and third baseman were switched around. So third baseman is considered kind of more of a defensive position. Second base is maybe less of a defensive position, a little more hitting is a little more important for them. But the thing about the Negro Leagues is that first base was considered very important well into the 1930s. Like you really wanted to have a good fielding first baseman. This is partly maybe because of the increased number of errors um, and the difficulty that infielders might have in digging the ball out and like getting it to first base. So you have a really good defensive, uh, talented defensive player, even though, you know, center fielder and a first base kind of, kind of think of them as having different skills. Um, You've got a center fielder who's maybe getting a little bit slower, but he's a great athlete. One of the first things you're going to think of is "Hmm, maybe he's left-handed. Maybe we can make him into a first baseman. And that's what happened with Oscar Charleston. And we certainly know him for the many great things he did in his career. All right, last question. What's next for the project? Well, we're still trying to finish our fielding statistics. So we've got a number of seasons in actually the 20s, 30s, and 40s that we're going to uh, try to finish that off. I think what we'd like to do is actually produce an old-fashioned print statistical encyclopedia, just like in the old days when you had Total Baseball or the Macmillan Encyclopedia. So we'd like to do that. That's probably not until we finish all the fielding stats and, and also a complete pitching stats. That's another thing that we're, that we're working on. So things like home runs allowed by pitchers and so on, which we don't have for every season. So that's, 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 that's one, of the, one of our next projects is the print encyclopedia. It all sounds very, very impressive. Gary, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck with this project. Great. Thanks a lot, Mark. It was great talking to you. Just a word here on the methodology for the run-saved component of what Seamheads is doing. Dan Hirsch tells me that they're using Michael Humphrey's defensive regression analysis using comparisons to MLB from the same era. Players are rated as being a number of runs above or below average by position. Okay, so that's the statistical side of the Negro League story. Now we get the storytelling component from Larry Lester. Larry Lester has been researching Negro League Baseball for a long time. I know this because I interviewed him 25 years ago for my college radio station. He's the nation's preeminent Negro League historian. He co-founded the Negro League Museum and chairs Sabre's Negro League Baseball Committee. He's also written or co-written nine books. With this being the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues, he's been telling stories about the league's history. Hopefully he's got a few for us from Kansas City. So I'm, I'm hoping that you got a good one or two for us here. Our focus of the show is on defense. So I, I guess the first thing I would ask is, are there players that had great defensive reputations from their time in the Negro Leagues? Who should we know about? Probably start with a catcher by the name of Biz Mackey, who taught Roy Campanella how to catch when he was with the Baltimore Eli Giants as a 15-year-old. Uh, Biz Mackey was known for his snap throws without raising up to throw to second base. and framing pitches. He was ahead of his time then. Yes. 
and they call him Biz because he talked a lot of busy talk behind <laughs> the plate to the batters. He was a busybody. You can't hit this. And then he'd stick it for a strike, you know, at the knees or on the right. outside corner. Nice. I like that. And probably the other catcher would be Larry Brown from the Memphis Red Sox, seven-time All-Star, very underrated, probably caught more no-hitters than any catcher in Negro League history. And then there's Bruce Petway from the Chicago American Giants, who in 1910, his team went to Cuba and played the Detroit Tigers. And during that series, he threw out Ty Cobb three times. They were probably the cream of the crop as far as Negro <laughs> League catchers. That holds up pretty well. First baseman, I would say Jim West from the Philadelphia Stars. Of course, Buck Leonard from the Homestead Grays. He played in 13 All-Star games. And Ted Strong, who was also a Harlem Globetrotter, played for the Kansas City Monarchs and the Indianapolis Athletics. Played in seven All-Star games. And you got Lenny Pearson from the Newark Eagles. Great All-Star first baseman. On the hot corner, I'd probably go with Howard Easterlin from the Homestead Graves and Oliver the Ghost Marcel from the Baccarat Giants out of Atlantic City. They were the premier hot corner third basemen. Oh, I got to remember Ray Dandridge, 1987 Hall of Fame third baseman for the Newark Eagles. A very bow-legged. The pictures of him, oh, wow, he's very bow-legged. But they, <laughs> they would often make claims that a train would have a better chance of going through his legs than a baseball ever did. Despite being bow-legged, he's one of the best base stealers in black baseball. And as we know, he was signed by the New York Giants, played with the Minneapolis Millers in the AAA form team. And I think he won the uh, batting title that year, but they didn't bring him up because they had another ball player on that same team by the name of Willie Mays. Who, uh, so who was like the Ozzie Smith? Who were the great middle infielders? would go with Newt Allen at second. He would do flips like Ozzie Smith. At the same time, he'd have a uh, sunflower uh, between his teeth. He was a showboat. He was the most animated and acrobatic infielder in the game. Played on 12 championship teams. Also at second base was Larry Doby with the Newark Eagles before he went to the major leagues. And Lorenzo Piper Davis was an Ozzie Smith-type performer. He could play all nine positions. He was from the Birmingham Black Barons. So that would be my Ozzie Smith comparisons. <laughs> oh, all right. So is there is there an outfielder that rivals uh, the guys that, that won a lot of gold gloves in the major leagues? I would go with Sam the Jet- Jethro, played with the Cleveland Buckeyes, covered a lot of territory. Uh, he, he later signed with the Boston Braves and became uh, the National League Rookie of the Year in 1952 at the age of 32. He was Rookie of the Year in 1950 at the age of 32. And he led the National League in stolen bases with 35. So Sam Jethro is at the top of my list. Of course, James Coupapa Bell would be one. Jimmy Crutchfield would be another. Jimmy Crutchfield is an unknown outfielder from a small town in Missouri. Great storyteller. Outstanding, newest facts. Jimmy Crutchfield played in four All-Star games, one with the Chicago American Giants and the other three with the Pittsburgh Crawfords. And he played on that championship 35 team. And in 1936, the entire Crawfords outfield made the All-Star team, the East-West All-Star Classic in, in Comiskey. Probably the fastest outfield in the league ever. So when I caught up with Jimmy Crutchfield in the early 1990s, I interviewed him and he was very serious and 
factual and right on point. And I asked him about that outfield. How fast was that Crocker's outfield? And he kind of leaned back and gave me half a smile. And he told me this story about the teams play sometimes for a percentage of the game. And so if the game got rained out, nobody got paid. So on one day before the start of the game, they saw a storm coming in. And so Sam Bankhead and James Coupapa Bell and him, they put their gloves on and pounded their gloves. And he said, when the rain came down, they ran around the field catching all the raindrops until the storm passed. <laughs> and in the process, they kept the field dry and they got paid. So he really pulled my chain that day. And <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was on the edge of my seat when he told me that fable. Okay, so you've, you've given us a lot of names. Uh, you've shared some history. Is there, I think you said that you had like one or two stories just that have defense as their central theme. I'd be curious to hear what those are. I was reading a, an account in the Chicago Defender uh, in 1942 about a play that Willie Wells made at the All-Star Game, how he had stole, stolen a hit from Buck O'Neill. And so uh, I asked Buck O'Neill about that play. Willie Wells was considered the premier shortstop in the league at the time. And Buck O'Neill remembered his encounter with the devil. In Spanish, that's El Dilabo. He got picked up that name in Mexico around 1940 when he went to play with Veracruz. And I asked him about that play. He said that was the most incredible play he had ever seen. He said, Willie Wells was playing shortstop. And I hit the ball to the right of second base, up the middle. I knew I'd got a hit. And Buck said, you know, that sucker came over and got that ball and threw me out. And I looked at him and I just laughed. That night we were at dinner and he said, you didn't think I was going to get that ball, did you? And Buck replied, you're the only fellow who could have caught it. That was Willie Wells. And they called him the devil because they said, don't hit the ball to the shortstop because the devil is out there. That's great. Willie James Wells. I call him Big Game James. Nice. Um, so you told uh, a number of stories here, and I would be willing to bet that of our listenership, a very large number of them have not heard of most of the people that you've talked about. Where can they go to learn more? Well, they can go to uh, the Seamheads website and type in any name and learn more. I just published a new book called The Negro Leagues Book, Volume 2. It's available on Amazon. The list roughly 7,000 ballplayers that you can find basic information about who played in what all-star games, uh, World Series rosters, a lot of trivia, a special section on women in black baseball. Few people know that there were several female owners of black teams besides Effa Manley. Uh, there were roughly five female players instead of three, as often reported. I'll list all of these players and their accomplishments in that book, the Negro Leagues book, volume two by Wayne Stivers and Larry Lester. So golden opportunity to learn about these great ball players. Few people know that there are 35 Negro League players and executives in the National Baseball Hall of Fame and their relative anonymity is a cruel joke on every baseball fan in America. So at least start with those 35 and go from there. And you've got certainly the Negro League Museum, which you co-founded, uh, and the Sabre uh, website, the Sabre Bio Project, uh, certainly another good resource. We will include links to those in the uh, description of this episode. Uh, last question, is there anything particularly cool or interesting Negro League related that you're working on? Wow, I'm working on <laughs> a lot of things, trying to celebrate the centennial anniversary of the league. 
I know Major League Baseball is looking at recognizing the Negro Leagues as a quality professional league. Well, I do have a little minor project uh, where I'm trying to get Major League teams to fly the championship flags of Negro League teams. For example, I'm trying to get the Kansas City Royals to fly the 1924 and 1942 Negro World Series flags for the Kansas City Monarchs. Pittsburgh in 1935, Pittsburgh Crawfords in Chicago, we would go with the 1926 and 1927 Chicago American Giants World Series champions, uh, so forth and so on. So I think this is low maintenance. It gives them a chance to add another championship flag to that pole and maybe, just maybe, get a few more African-Americans into their ballparks. Larry Lester, uh, Negro League historian, co-founder of the Negro League Museum. Thank you for your work. And thank you for your time. Thank you, Mark. Have a great day. There were a lot of names and a lot of stories you've heard in the last uh, couple of interviews that we've done. Hopefully you learned something. I know I did. I wanted to close the show with a history lesson on Roberto Clemente, as Wednesday was Roberto Clemente Day in the major leagues. Clemente hit 317 with 3,000 hits in an 18-year career for the Pirates that ended tragically, with Clemente dying in a plane crash while making a humanitarian mission. The Roberto Clemente Award is named in his honor. Clemente's throwing arm is the standard by which all others in baseball are measured. He won 12 gold gloves and had said he could throw to any base accurately blind. Clemente was a black Latino who said he didn't get the recognition of other MLB stars because of his race and ethnicity. He certainly left a memorable legacy and an example for others to follow. This wraps up the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thanks to Gary Ashwell and Larry Lester and our producer Justin Stein. Check the show notes for links to visit to learn more about what we talked about today. And don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Mark Simon. Stay safe, stay well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.